0: Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. Welcome. Episode 111 today. I'm excited that you're here. Larissa Fasthorse is my guest today. Larissa is a playwright, and we have a great conversation about her writing process, about art, about theater participation, inclusive theater. It's a great conversation. I'm glad you're here for this. So, Larissa. Is part of the Si Chunggu Lakota Nation. She's an indigenous storyteller. And she had an amazing play this past spring on Broadway. She's the first known native woman playwright to have a show on Broadway. It was called The Thanksgiving Play. It was at the Helen Hayes Theater in New York, presented by the Second Stage Theater. And I went and saw it live. And after seeing it, I knew I wanted to talk to Larissa because there was just so much in that show that caught my fascination backing up a minute. So the reason that I even went to see the Thanksgiving play is because Scott Foley was in it. And if you've been listening to this podcast for any time, you know that Scott has, has become a friend of mine and uh, was kind of instrumental in getting this whole podcast off the ground. I knew him through my time at this old house. And when that went away, I was trying to figure out what my next move was going to be and thought about launching this podcast, Pitched the idea to Scott And he said yes. And he's the first episode of this show. And then I interviewed him again later. I think he's it was like episode 85, maybe was the other one. But at any rate, uh, Scott and I have, have remained in touch now. And I knew he was on this play on Broadway. And I wanted to see it. And what I've been doing lately is I try to go into things with no preconceived notions. I try not to read reviews. I try not to see what people are talking about online i want to go in with fresh eyes and just experience the art as much as i can i do this for movies when they're in the in the cinema i do this for plays in the theater like i don't want to know what anybody else has thought about it so i go in clean and i absorb it and i think about it and i come away with my own thoughts and the thanksgiving play was definitely one that had (laughs) lots of wheels turning in my head after seeing it it also came by the way Right as I was wrapping up this book group that I was doing about the book, White Women. And if you go back a couple episodes and listen to my conversation with Syra Rao, uh, she's the co-author of White Women. And you can sort of see where all of these different pieces dovetail. But the Thanksgiving play, it's, it's about four white people trying to tell the story of Thanksgiving in an elementary school setting. Three of them are educators and one is a professional actor that's brought in from Los Angeles Initially, because the director of the play thinks that this woman is indigenous, it turns out that she's actually not. She's just somebody that is vaguely ethnic enough that she has multiple different headshots and can play all these different ethnicities. So it's these four white people grappling with telling the story of Thanksgiving, but doing so in a sensitive way. They are very liberal people, they are very open minded, and they want to do the right thing. But they just keep tripping over themselves. And it ends up kind of really spiraling in almost a farcical way. And things get really out of control. I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. But um, yeah, it was an amazing show on Broadway. And it's actually being performed all over right now. According to the theater communications group, the Thanksgiving play is one of the top 10 most performed plays in the 2023-2024 season. There's eight official different productions. And I think Larissa said that there are even more happening around the world. So if you see the Thanksgiving play near you, go check it out. It is really interesting, really well written. And yeah, it just had tied in really nicely with some of the other reading I was doing at the time around white supremacy and white identity. And how that can get in the way of progress. And that's something Larissa is going to talk about today. And again, if you haven't heard it yet, after you listen today, go back and listen to my interview with Syra Rao, because I think that will inform a lot of today's conversation. Because I think a lot of people hear white supremacy and they think of the Klan. They think of genocide and murders and all of that. And it is that. But the way that Syra described it to me is that there's kind of a pyramid of white supremacy. And at the very top is genocide and the Klan and all these horrible things. But as you go down, that pyramid obviously gets bigger. And at the base of that is making jokes. It's being insensitive to cultural differences. All of that is part of white supremacy and and a racist culture too. And so when Larissa talks about, you know, the theater today, for example, being white supremacist, she's not saying that, you know, you go into a theater and everybody's there with, with Klan robes and Nazi flags. What she's saying is that there is this structure in this country, there is this inherent default to whiteness that is part of the theater, yes, but is part of all of our institutions. I also have been following Larissa on social media and have been very interested in kind of her journey as a playwright. She is always doing new work, which is really cool, and has figured out how to make this a full-time job, which I know for a lot of people in theater It's difficult. It's a passion for a lot of people, but it's not always a career. Or if it is a career, it's something that has to fit around something else, right? And Larissa, you'll hear just her drive to make the art, to honor the art, and to make that a part of everything she's doing. Like I really admire that piece, and I enjoyed that piece of the conversation today. If you're interested in seeing more of Larissa's work, For the People is her current show. She co-wrote it with her writing partner, Ty Defoe, and it is playing through November 12th at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. Go check that out if you are anywhere near the Twin Cities. And we also talk about touring some of the reservations over the spring and summer with her show, "Wichu," and that was a really interesting process to follow along with online as well. I was following as, as she was touring around and doing very small-scale work at the same time that she had a big Broadway show. So it's interesting, just kind of all these different worlds that that her professional life exists within, her identity as a Native American woman, as a Native American playwright, how that informs her work, and how that informs the entire theater experience. I mean, it's an interesting conversation today around inclusion as well. And just, I think a lot of times in like DEI conversations and things, There is this idea that it stops once people get in the door, that you bring people in and that's that. We've done our job. Let's move on. But there is ongoing support that's necessary to bring diverse voices, to bring people of color, to bring non-white voices or LGBT voices or whatever it is into these spaces that have traditionally been white, patriarchal, heteronormative, whatever. Like it takes work to make those spaces feel inclusive. If you like this conversation today, by the way, I know that you will like my newsletter. I publish two issues a week, every Wednesday and every Sunday. You can go to HeathRasella.com slash newsletter to get on the list for that. And you also get access to the podcast. If you want to do a paid membership, you even get early access to the podcast. So that is awesome. You can listen every other week when I have a new show. Heathrasella.com slash newsletter. Get on the list there. Go check out "For the People" through November twelfth at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. Here it is, my conversation with Larissa Fasthorse. So, I want to start with the Thanksgiving play. I saw it on Broadway this past season; um, loved it. I guess I want to start though with just the Broadwayness of it. Like for a playwright. That's got to be kind of the pinnacle of what you're out to accomplish, I guess. Like, what did it feel like having a show on Broadway this past year?
1: Yeah, it was huge. I mean, it's definitely been a goal of mine. I was clear with my agent, like, oh, my gosh, it's been like 12 years ago. I was like, look, you know, I feel like I could be the Native American female playwright that finally makes it to Broadway because there's never been one in the history of the form for some reason. Um, And it's almost 80 years since our last known Native playwright on Broadway, which was Lynn Riggs. Um, So it was really important to me to get there simply for the, it just needs to happen of it. Yeah, of course. But, you know, I will say like going in, I was very, honestly, you know, it's exciting and something I've been like aiming for, but also like the very next play I did was my tour of Wachu in my homelands on reservations. And like, that's a lifelong dream that I had, you know what I mean? Like, so... Broadway's like a newer thing for me where you're know, working with my people and being on our lands and supporting folks and telling their own stories is actually my ultimate goal um yeah. so I, I was lucky enough to this spring to have my two biggest goals happen at once and yeah. um that's pretty exciting it was overwhelming but exciting and and i'm super honored to be you know have this position in broadway and i will be honest too that like it was way better than i expected it to be
0: yeah in
1: what way <laughs> i just It was going to be like, I don't know, very commercial and whatever, but because I was also in a house that really centers new American voices, it was very different. I was very, I was so supported and my cast. You know, as you know, it was so unbelievably incredible. And and people say that, but like, it was really amazing. The The lack of drama and the professionalism with that group and, and the awareness that we were all making history together was always in the room and they really took that seriously. And I was so touched and humbled by that. Yeah. And then I also didn't expect like the Broadway audiences. I did not expect, like I'm a playwright. I'm not used to, you know, signing autographs outside the, the stage door for half an hour. That's very <laughs> weird for playwrights. <laughs> It's like, it's not what we do. Um, But it was great. I I still have, you know, the Peaches were Darcy Carden super fans that came from all over the world, hundreds of them from all over the world. And now they become my fans in a really sweet way. And I talk to them on Instagram all the time. Like, I just, I didn't expect it to be such a community. And that, that's really exciting. On top of like.
0: (laughs) Sure. I I mean, it's strange because like the show opens with this film clip of elementary students singing songs about thanksgiving and that kind of motif carries through the play there are, there are different points where there are these interstitials that you know they're all kind of based in schools but different takes on on sort of the thanksgiving story and it was interesting like sitting in the audience the beginning of that song i should say the first song i think people were kind of ooing and aahing and like oh look at these cute little kids and Like slowly becoming aware of the content of what they were saying and just the discomfort of like, wait, should I be laughing at this? Like, I don't know. It was interesting, I think, to to feel the audience understanding the play in real time, too. It's surprising in some ways, I guess, like it doesn't it doesn't come right out and make a statement. Right off the bat, I guess it it's it's a discovery process with the audience.
1: Yeah, for sure. Which I, you know, I'm really intentional about how I craft my plays. I could get into a whole long dirty neuroscience thing, but I I, I really think a lot about how our brain creates memories, how our brain honors patterns in the way it organizes itself in our up there. Yeah. Um, I'm real nervous about that stuff. So I think a lot about that when I'm creating plays. There's there's different ways to change people. You can shock them into a, like, whatever. But I like to, I, I like I love that experience of theater, right? That we can come together and be, like, listening to each other and be like, oh, why are you laughing? Should I be laughing? Yeah. Why am I not laughing? Why are you, like, falling out of your chair laughing? You know, like, that experience is unique to theater. So I like to really make it a ride Everybody is invited on, and so that takes a lot of thought. Actually, about how we arm our our brain, arms itself against new information, what it wants to do with old information, how it organizes information, and so everything I do is very specifically calculated to to that, to making sure I I, I take everyone on the ride with us, even if it's you know about you, audience member. (laughs) Like I want you though to know that you're welcome on this ride, because ultimately I want you to think differently and be an ally and have us all like you know, working for a better world together. Um, yeah. I don't want to hate anyone.
0: Right. But, but I mean, it's a difficult, especially this topic around, you know, the Thanksgiving mythology and the first Thanksgiving, and like that's a big focus of the play and it, it just kind of this white cast grappling with how to tell it from a non-white perspective and, you know, not having a native voice in the room and, and grappling with that, that was obviously intentional on your part too, to, to cast it that way and to write it that way. Why the importance of that, I guess, of, of it being white people dealing with non-white voices?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, like, I mean, the pra- the real story reason, right, that I've talked about before is that I honestly just couldn't get my p- plays produced. After the first production, you know, my plays would get commissioned. I'm really fortunate my commissions get produced, but then that would be it and they wouldn't get yeah. produced again. So on a practical level, I had to do it on self-preservation just to get people to do my plays more than once. Yeah. but on an artistic level, like, I love this play, right? So I had to figure out, well, how do I make that work? If that's the situation I'm in right now as a Native American person, the only way we can get a Native voice in the room is through white mouths, then how do I make that say what I want to say and still feel as an artist that I'm being true to what I do and representing folks? Having these voices is essential, though, right? Because we need, I mean, I get it. Like I get it now. Because most of Unfortunately, still most of American theater audiences are are white folks, right? Sure. And so, and they have been really generous in supporting my work. And I love that. And so, I mean, I love white people. I'm married to a white person. Um, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> so like, that's great. I'm half white. It's, I, I like that side. Um, so, you know, I really wanted to make sure that like they see themselves, they see their neighbor, they see, interestingly, I, I've talked to a lot of like, say our older, more traditional, what we call subscriber audiences. Um, yeah. They're like, oh, that's my grandchildren. Like, I Hmm. get it. Like, I finally understand them. And I understand what they're grappling with. And I understand that we're actually grappling with some of the same things like, you know, Thanksgiving, and like you said, the interstitial scenes and the children and stuff, but also we're grappling with things in a very different way, because of the way the world is now compared to where what it was when I was a kid. And and that the, the lexicon has changed and the the frame has changed, and 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 the widening of the frame, and, and all those things. So it's it's really fun to be able to talk to them, and say, oh, it's causing them to have these conversations about Thanksgiving and all the larger issues in the play across generations and with each other, which is my goal, right? We yeah. want people to discuss these things and and figure out where they want to be in this conversation.
0: Sure, I mean there's a there's an imperfection to the white allyship too, of you know, sort of the three uh, the three main characters are almost over the top in their performativeness of this white allyship and, you know, overly sensitive to language, overly sensitive to how they're giving space or taking space or, you know, there's some satire in that, I guess, or some exaggeration. But as you say, you kind of need <laughs> that white allyship. To, like it's in an, it's an imperfect allyship um, just simply because of the power structure in this country that like you need them on board, but yet There's a lot of baggage sometimes that can come with that, that allyship. Is that a fair read, you think?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I, I, you know, unfortunately, I would say too, people think I'm being especially satirical. Uh, But I've said again, again, 80% of the lines of the Thanksgiving play are directly from my life. I just, I write down all the crazy shit people say to me and the craziest (laughs) stuff like isn't in there because people didn't believe it. You know, the stuff that people actually have said to me, like I had a theater supporter once at um, a dinner for a theater company, it was an indigenous, um, it was something my company, Indigenous Direction, was working on as far as facilitating a meeting between this theater company and these indigenous folks that were visiting the area, et cetera. So we had facilitated this whole week of events and things, and, and we're at this big, like, you know, donor dinner kind of thing for the event, you know, for the week. And I'm sitting at this table, you know, I'm one of the main, you know, speakers of this evening, and talking to this woman before i get up and speak and she's a big you know east coast young 30s um, theater supporter and when we got done talking i was like oh well i have to get going because you know I'm, I'm up to speak she's like oh and, and she asked who i was and i gave her my name larissa fast she said fast horse are you native american and i said yeah and she's like i never would have guessed you're so well spoken hmm. that was just a couple few years ago <laughs> like yeah with- young a woman in her 30s you know like i mean the the things that are 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 being said like when i tried to put something like that in the play no one everyone was like no one would say that and i was like well they do (laughs) so you know (laughs) you know we're dealing with people those things that are said in my play that sounds satirical are just straight out of my life you know and they're constant but yes all that said then yes we need that but i want those people to be allies right and you know i i've said you know somewhat whatever um you know provocatively in the past you have this play called what would crazy horse do that deals with a particular branch of the clan that I became very interested in that's a that's actually a, a registered lobbying group in our country and um they they seem very they've rebranded themselves in a brilliant way and they seem very okay like very soft soft clan you know yeah. <laughs> and so but you know their, their core beliefs are terrifying and um, I said, you know, when I when I dealt with one of these members, this guy, Michael, and new member services that he and I emailed for a couple of years as my research for this piece, you know, I was very open with what I was doing. And I was like, it was actually easier to deal with Michael in the Klan yeah. than it is for many well meaning white allies in my field in my liberal field, because at least we knew each where we're coming from. And it was clear. And we could just talk to each other. We knew what was happening. We move forward together in this weird way for two years. Of correspondence, where with really well-meaning liberal white folks, they put themselves in such pretzels with such fear of making a mistake that nothing happens, and we just right. talk in these circles. I'm like, I don't even know what we're talking about. Like, we just can't communicate, and so that's really, you know, what I'm talking about too. Yeah, that I experience on a daily basis in my career, in my field.
0: Sure. I mean, that piece, just understanding kind of where the dialogue and things comes from, is helpful. I want to back up even bigger. I mean, you, you had just posted um, an old Facebook post from uh, 2014 where you were talking about kind of reverse manifesting. This notion into being of you know um, a lot of things that, that you had said you no longer wanted to do were happening in your life at that point back in 2014. So you said quote on Facebook for the record I'm not interested in having a wildly successful play that tours the world make lots of money and gives us the freedom to do all kinds of art big and small. And then you said uh, in your caption to this this uh, throwback post exactly one year later I wrote the first draft of the Thanksgiving play. So take me back to that point like where did this play come from beyond just sort of dealing with the the white liberals in your life? Where did the idea come from?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I was trying to find honestly try to find a way into whiteness that, that yeah. was ubiquitous, right? Like something that everybody in America could understand. So, you know, I went through Columbus Day, which we do talk about in the play. I went through Fourth of July. I went through a lot of different things. And so many of our holidays, like Christmas and Easter or whatever, are are denominational. So I didn't want to, you know, do that. So I was trying to find the widest possible audience. And Thanksgiving just seemed to, you know, fit the bill as far as having, you know, such well-known. I mean, many of these other holidays have actually really specific ties to Indigenous history and culture here in this continent. But uh-huh. Thanksgiving is the one that I think most people just knew that we know there's something there, you know, and that we should yeah. be talking about, but eh, we don't know how to do it. So, um, so that's where I start. I really just found that and started with that. And then I was really in the, you know, I'm in the very liberal nonprofit world. I was doing a lot of at that time. This pre-pandemic, lots of EDI training that I was actually part of. You know, taking these trainings and and learning the new lexicons. That that sometimes I was just like wow, people. You know, we're just again, we're just we're spinning ourselves in circles to say the right word and and right. not offend anybody, but we're not actually then doing any. We're not going anywhere. We're just sitting here spinning in circles, and we're not yeah. Getting the intent's not done. there.
0: It's it's all linguistic, but it's not. There's no intent yeah. behind it, or no yeah 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 no heart
1: yeah exactly. No no, that's exactly yeah. And I was just kind of making me crazy because I'm like well. Just, you know, make a mistake and do something, you know? Yeah. And so with all that together, I was like, I, I in my head, I was like, well, where does all this start? And I was like, well, it really starts with childhood, right? And if we're talking about Thanksgiving and, and how we deal with other folks and how we portray ourselves, et cetera, it all starts with childhood. And so I started doing research into education and, and Thanksgiving, and then I'm, my mind was blown. I had no idea about all these pageants they are still being done today and yeah. these songs, horrible things we have children doing today in very, you know, all over the country, not just in weird, isolated places, like yeah. everywhere. Um, and so, you know, I was really shocked. So then I was like, okay, how about I weave all this together? And yeah, you know, I wrote the first draft in 10 days in, in a retreat in Ireland. I knew I had something there. And within, you know, very quick amount of time, it was being produced.
0: Yeah. I, I haven't read your other work, um, but your team did send over the manuscript for the Thanksgiving play before this. And I was I was reading through it. I was really taken with Kind of, I could, I could feel, I guess, the collaboration in behind it. Like, there's very sparse stage direction, at least in the version that I read, and it seems very open, both for the director and the actors to interpret. Yeah, like, I get—is that typical of your writing? I guess to to not be so prescriptive about how you want things done.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this play I really created as a director's piece. You know, uh-huh. it's really I love my director. I work so my work. I've been very fortunate from my very first play was a collaborative process where even though it was a traditional commission I was working in collaboration with the director and also all the designers so yeah, from my wow. very first play we called our designers design dramaturgs right and so they were with us from conception through production wow. um so every step of the way I was meeting with them and talking to them and dreaming with them and I mean that that is I mean it's such a great way to make work you know so it's funny cuz now like what you saw the sparse stage directions was like a lot of stage directions for me because I had several years in the beginning where yeah. I had designers through the whole process, so I never wrote one stage direction. I was like, "Oh wow, y'all, you figure out where this is set. You figure out what it sounds like. You figure out what it looks like. You figure out what they, would, you know, like." I didn't care because I had designers with me through the whole thing, and I just trusted them and let them do yeah. their job. Right? It's a collaborative art form. Um. So now I was like, "Oh shoot, now I have to write stage directions" because I I was writing this on my own, and you know I've had yeah I've had other plays now that I've written on my own, but I really miss that. I miss being able to be with a collaboration from beginning to end of a commission. Um, so, you know, I was really fortunate that, you know, also on all my other plays, I have all these incredible directors that I collaborate with. So I made this play a director play. They get to, it changes wildly with every production I've seen. I mean, wildly, so different. I mean, completely, you know, those silent scenes, which, you know, I love They the improv scenes, the the way the interstitials are done. You know, people just play and have fun and, and it's so much fun to see how different they are. Yeah, I love that. And actor wise, you know, there's that the, there's a lot of freedom in those scenes. Um, when I'm in the room, you can ask Scott, you know, like we I, I always my line is always if you can sell it, I'll buy it. But you have yeah. to sell it first. You know, so they are actors once they get the game with me. They're just pitching lines endlessly, you know, they, they, I see them over there, like working on something and then they try it out and see how it goes. And, you know, and, and if it, if it makes sense for the, you know, if they sell it and it makes sense for the overall story, I, I'll buy it. I, cause I want the play to fit those performers. I want them to feel great and feel like this is, ex- this is the role they were meant to play, you know, yeah. cause it's perfect for them.
0: And I love that. But how hard for you as a writer? Like, I feel like, especially if you're writing by yourself, like you were saying you were in this case, like you have a version of each character in your head, I would think you you can kind of you can picture them physically, how their voice sounds, you know, all these different things. How do you let go of that version and let other people into that so willingly?
1: Oh, gosh, that's the that's the fun part. Like, yeah, I don't understand writers that don't want to do that. Like, that's the fun of it's yeah. like discovery, the discovery, like, if, it, if I was just wanted to write stuff that's in my head, I'd be a novelist, right? Because that's mm. what you do. You write down exactly what you see and the way you see it, and that's it, you know? I don't want to be a no- I mean, I might be a novelist someday, but I don't want to be a novelist. I love theater because it's a collaborative form, and that when I create a play, all I'm creating is the skeleton. That's it. The script yeah. is just the skeleton, nothing else. And then all of the flesh and the blood and the, and the skin and all the stuff, like, that's everybody else. I can't create all that. You know, and yeah. and that's what's beautiful about theater. I, I I get very sad for writers that are like, no, this it has to be like this, and they they live with all this frustration and angst because they're not doing it the way I wanted it. And I was like, why not just like let them do it well? As long as you're doing it incredibly yeah. well, who cares? Right. Like it's, it's so much more fun. Like I love when I walk into a room and an actor reads a part in a way I'd never imagined. I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. And then suddenly you'll know, because suddenly that actor has monologues because <laughs> like, I get excited, you know? Um, yeah. Or a designer comes up with something wild. I'm like, oh my God. And then, then that that just expands and becomes a huge part of the play. or You know what I mean? Like that's, I love that. That's why we do theater. It's supposed to be a collaboration. I, I'm sad for folks that aren't.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love that too. That's that's awesome. I, I mean, I, I kind of want to go back, I guess, too, and understand like, well, let me just say this first. Like you're on this list this year of of top 20 most produced playwrights for this 2023 2024 season. Like, just the idea of of playwright as a career, like it's daunting for a lot of people. It's a dream for a lot of people. You've made it happen. I wonder, like, what did it take to get there? Like, where, what was that initial spark for you to say, "Ooh, this is this is the field for me"?
1: You know, I was a classical ballet dancer in my first career, and um, you know, you retire at 30. <laughs> and you've had a great career, a long yeah. great career career. Um, and so, you know, when I found writing through a long process and thought I was going to do film and TV and was disappointed in that field and this representation of Native people 15 years ago, the theater found me when I was really lost and just didn't know what I was going to do because it was ready to represent Native people in the way I wanted it to up to a point until I found out, oh, except casting. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, it was, re- it was letting me write the stories I wanted to write and have them produced at least the first time the way I wanted them produced. You know, this sounds so flip and all the things, but, well, well, my husband and I are both artists. We chose, he's a sculptor, um, which is 10 times harder <laughs> than <it's like> writing. <laughs> it's much harder as a career. Yeah. You know, we chose that this was what we wanted to focus our lives on, was making art together and being artists together. So, you know, we don't have children. Um, that was a, a choice. Except so we felt, we believed one of us would need to you know, give up our career and, and make money. We're going to have children because we didn't want them to struggle the way both of us have struggled at times in our life. Sure. And we, we, I'll be honest, I lived below the poverty line for a lot of years. You know, I don't have, I don't have a degree in anything. So I couldn't like just be a teacher. I didn't, you know, so we lived well below the poverty line for a very long time. And it was really, really hard. And, you know, you're, you're taking that per diem and just putting it together and trying to like, Buy enough food to eat and pay your rent and you know all the things and get some insurance for yourself and you know because writers don't get insurance and so you know there's there's so many things that we really struggled with but to us it was a choice we made that we wanted to do and yeah you know, I remember you know just six seven years ago gathering up you know our spare change off the floor to buy groceries you know like wow. you know that's where I lived most of my career but it was a choice we we wanted to do that. We we wanted me to be a full-time playwright and just do what I love doing. And we were always hoping it was building to something, but we didn't, you know, we didn't know. There's a lot of years um of doing a lot of things. So, uh in writing. So it's hard. I will say it's really hard, but I I also didn't have a fallback plan. I didn't have a day job. Yeah. I didn't have a fallback. I had to make money, which meant that I had to demand people pay me and pay me enough that I could live on and And I had to become a really good negotiator and say, look, I I would love to do this reading. I can't afford to get there. I can't, you know, so I stayed with board members. I did all the stuff, you know, Um, but I was really open with people and said, this is what I need. And I valued what I do from the beginning and, and said, you know, if you want me, this is what you're going to have to do. You have to give me these things or I can't do it. And people were really good about that. And even when I worked with little, like, I worked with storefront theaters up in um, the Bay Area for several years. And uh, this one particular theater, Alter Theater, and they had, like, no money. But they, like, yeah. they, they put me in board members' homes. And they went out and solicited gift certificates from restaurants. Because they didn't have <laughs> wow. money to pay me a per diem, so I could eat for free, which was wow. a huge thing. You know, when you're on the road, that's huge. You know, sure. to have free food, that's yeah, yeah. what I was doing just seven years ago. You know, <laughs> it's like getting gift certificates from restaurants. You know, so people found really creative ways to to help me. But it, it that's what it took. It took all of that. Yeah, and and my husband would be willing to. He had like a part time business of his own that he was doing that he was willing to do so when everything else fell apart we could still pay the rent you know um that's really what it took i'll be honest it takes juggling five play even now i'm still juggling five projects at a time because it's such a weird business and as i discovered this year opening a play on broadway doesn't mean that your next huge play the mark taker perform won't get canceled so
0: um
1: you know there's no security there's no safety so i have to keep juggling five things at a time even now.
0: For you and your husband, both like trusting that process, trusting the art, trusting that the, that the art would see you through. Like, did you ever lose faith during that time or did you just, did you not have a choice? I guess you just had to keep going with it.
1: Yeah, no, I never lost faith in it because I was doing beautiful work. Like those two plays I did in these storefronts where I was getting the kill certificates, like that was beautiful work. And they both like won awards in the Bay Area, you know, like, which was incredible. We're like, we're the little, you know, going up against San Francisco Playhouse and ACT and we we won awards, you know, for our work there because it was beautiful work. And that's what mattered to us was creating incredible work. And it re- was representing the contemporary indigenous culture in a way that I was proud of and felt good about. But was it hard? Absolutely. Like, did we cry a lot over the stress of not being able to pay the rent this month or have insurance or, you know, there's a lot of tears over the years for sure. Yeah. It was really, really hard, and you know, and right now I don't take any of this for granted. I mean, right now my bills are paid for a few years, but then I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a fickle business. I could be, I could be gone, you know, really quickly. So you know, we're trying to plan and and be ready for that.
0: Yeah, it's tough, I'm sure. I, I want to ask you, um, uh, just sort of your background as an indigenous writer, like. I could see it going two ways I guess. On the one hand, it feels like there's almost an obligation to have to tell indigenous stories that like you might if you ever wanted to just write a rom-com or, you know, something like that. Like there's a part of you that I I'm I'm guessing wouldn't want to tell that. But like the other way to look at that, I guess, is that you're kind of honoring your people and honoring their stories. Like how do you view where you fit as an indigenous writer and sort of within the larger writer sphere i guess writer sphere
1: yeah i mean i you know yes in the beginning of my career sometimes i was like oh, i want to change my name to my husband's last name hogan right because yeah. then i could just be whoever like <laughs> and so um, yeah i thought about that a few times but also then i came to understand that for whatever reason my my path is to be the first one right so yeah. i in 95 Probably 99% of the theaters I work in, I'm the first Native American writer they produced, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes they'll commission others, but I'm generally the first production. I just have you know, we're like, okay, that's my path. And that's an honor. That's an incredible honor. Like, yeah. who am I to whine about? Like, people are producing my plays, but they want to write, want me to write about Native things. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that's so pathetic. It's awful. I, I, then I should definitely be canceled. Um, you know, so like, it's an honor. It's an honor that as the first, I'm the first, and it's an honor yeah. that I can represent indigenous voices in different ways. You know, I have written, I have one that storefront place did a play called Call Bingo that's about my childhood in 4-H, you know, as someone living in the Midwest and in an agricultural area. Um, And so, you know, it is not necessarily about indigenous things. It is about the same region I grew up in and then something that's very common to many indigenous people, but it's not specifically indigenous. So I've written other things that aren't, but it's an honor. And it's something that, you know, if I'm going to be the first one like I just was on the Guthrie stage and at the Hayes and at the Mark Taper Forum and all these different places then you know why not bring the local indigenous folks with me and and yeah. and make sure they're seen because who knows if there's going to be another one we don't know right. so
0: yeah i mean you mentioned this show at the Guthrie for the people like i was really struck something you'd written on instagram about it too that uh, nearly all the cast and crew it seems are are native american uh, and the Guthrie, in particular, it sounds like, has really worked to make it kind of a welcoming space, and they're not afraid to ask questions <laughs> or to get it wrong. I think is how you put it. Yeah. Like, talk to me just about that need of like wanting to welcome diverse voices into the process, but often, you know, people think that ends, I guess, at the hiring—that like, okay, we're we're going to hire you, and that's that. But but realizing that that's kind of an ongoing support and sort of changing some structural things often in these organizations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a job that doesn't end. Like you don't you don't win representation and right. and you get a trophy and you go home, you know, yeah. like it just, it keeps morphing and changing, right? And so, you know, the Guthrie has, you know, Joe Hodge has really put the work in, you know, uh, my company, Indigenous Direction tied to I've been there for seven years now. So oh, we're wow. entering our, like just into our seventh year of working with them and helping them Change their structures, change their relationships with community, work with communities, you know, do all the things. Um, prepare folks, you know, uh, make sure we had enough native artists that were ready to work at the Guthrie and that wanted to. You know, first off, do they want? Find the ones that want to, and then help yeah. them prepare for like how do things work in theater that are different than your personal art practice or or whatever it is you do. What you're seeing now for the people is the payoff of seven years of work, you know, mm-hmm. and and dedication their staff does a decolonizing workshop every single Wednesday. Like they have a meeting wow. every Wednesday. So. Okay, what else in our practices are getting in the way of doing better work with communities, not just Native communities, but just basically non-white communities? You know, it, it, it's ongoing. We we were meeting in front of house and it's interesting. We we're having this meeting about decolonizing the experience for audience as We got closer to the audience and you know the words kept coming in. Well, when we get back to our normal audience, when we have our regular, it's like whoa, 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 whoa. There yeah. are not abnormal audiences and normal audiences. There should not. I, I believe that's not what you want. There may be, but that's. Right. I believe that the Guthrie Theater does not want white people to be the normal audience right. and Native yeah, people. Yeah. To be, you know, but it's just baked into the way we think because that's right. the culture of American theater. Right? Is white folks and and. Yeah. I I flippantly um, send an email saying, well, you know what, we can solve all this by just having every show have one night that's white supremacy culture night. And (laughs) everybody can come and have a great time (laughs) feeling superior and silent and doing the things the way they were used to and they're comfortable with that doesn't involve any other cultures or any other people acting differently than white supremacy culture. And um, that didn't go over well, but it didn't make. The, I don't think they're going to do that. But it did yeah. make the point, right? That like, yeah, that's what theater is. And that, so it's more than just putting different work on the stage. It's more than just hiring a bunch of native folks, designers and artists and actors and all that, that we, and consultants that we had on this piece. It's changing how your space looks, changing how it operates, changing how we discuss our normal audience <laughs> yeah, and all the things, you know, it's changing your entire mindset. Um, I, I would send a picture that I also posted on my Instagram there about what it looked like this weekend. So the Guthrie is this, the lobby is a very sparse space. It's a very tall, yeah. very empty space. Um, but it's the, the windows are all facing the Missouri river. It's, it's gorgeous or Mississippi there. Sorry. Um, Mississippi river there. It's really beautiful. And then the only decoration they have are these little window boxes of black and white photos that are, they look like, we always call them the ghosts, right? So there are these lights okay. behind them and, and they're they are showing these different beautiful productions they should be proud of from all the years. However, we went down them and you can only identify like one night, non-white person in all of these dozens of photos, you know, and that was yeah. Othello. So, what? you know, it's like, uh, um, that, you know, seemed obviously not white. Uh, and so now... There's this beautiful installation of, there's a recreation of this huge mural that was done in the area that the play is written about Franklin Avenue, East Franklin Avenue, that says, never homeless before 1492. And each letter is a panel and different mm. people in the community were responsible for each panel. And so it's wildly different. It's beautiful as, you know, is addressing the homeless, um, disproportionate homeless situation in the Twin Cities for Native people. It's fairly controversial. It's activist. It's beautiful. It's community. It's Native. It's all these things. And they've installed it in the lobby over all the ghost photos. Yeah. So it's beautiful and bright and Indigenous. And then on the other side of the lobby from the windows is an art market of all these local Native artists that showed up and sold their work. And and it was beautiful. And so the whole lobby you walked in was just Native stuff. Like, yeah. you know, for a Native play about Native people set in a Native neighborhood, it's like, that's what it takes, right? And, and so when you saw these people coming in, it's like, oh, this is a place for us, you know? And right. I, I got a message from a woman who's like, my parents came. They're not theater people. And so they came, they're like, and they, oh, and Native elders all got two free tickets to the show anytime they want. Um, They're like, we're such VIPs. Like, we got the free <laughs> tickets and we walk in and we're like, oh, this is this is where we're meant to be. You know, this is our space. It looks like us and sounds like us and feels like us and is supporting us. Like it takes more than just a work on the stage, you know, and, um, and, and they're doing an incredible job, but it takes a lot of work, continued, continued work.
0: Yeah. I mean, kind of on the flip side of this, you mentioned touring uh, reservations this summer uh, and doing some shows that way. And it was interesting, kind of, I, I started following you on Instagram after seeing the Thanksgiving play and mm-hmm. sort of seeing those two different worlds um, in your posts of just kind of one week left of of the Broadway show, but now I'm in, you know, South Dakota doing this show or whatever it is. Like, what was that experience like of, of just touring and doing the, I, I guess, kind of contrasting that too with, with having a show on Broadway at the same time. Like talk to me about those two different worlds, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was beautiful. It was the perfect way to (laughs) stop being on Broadway. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was really good. Uh, you know, I was in my home, which is always lovely. Yeah. I had to go, I had 24 hours at home in between. I had to literally go home, dump out my entire suitcase because there's not one thing in there that I was useful in South Dakota. <laughs> like right. Broadway show, New York clothing, and South Dakota prairie clothing are exact opposites. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I dumped out everything, refilled it with all the clothes that can survive the prairie, the rain, the gravel, the you know, all the things, the woods that we were working. Yeah, you know, all the stuff. And changed everything over. I I literally did not bring one thing from one to the other except my underwear. Like that's the only thing that survived the the transfer. And so it's it's just such a polar opposite experience that you could not get farther apart. But it was really perfect. You know, we're the day I I opened Thanksgiving play on April 20th. We flew home on the 21st. By the I think the 22nd, I was in. um, Or no, early on the 23rd, I was in South Dakota in the middle of the Black Hills, which is. The Black Hills are considered, from Lakota cultural standpoint, they're the where our people emerged into this planet. So mm-hmm. it's the heart of everything that is. It's the heart. If you don't understand the Black Hills, you don't understand Lakota people. Um, yeah. And so we were rehearsing there in a cabin in the woods, you know, with all of us living together in one space. Wow. I was carrying six hundred pounds of sandbags every day to and from our little set that we're putting up. You know, we performed in a skate park with twelve dogs and. People everywhere. We performed in the prairie. We performed in high school gyms. We performed um, outside outside of a theater. We performed in civic centers. We performed in powwow grounds. You know, like we really got to do what I'm trying to do in commercial theater in in large predominantly white institutions. We did. Yeah. We just brought theater to the people. But it was beautiful theater. It was well written theater. It was meaningful theater. It was theater that represented them and the people we we're speaking to. But it also you know, had all these incredible you know designers working on it that made it elevated and gorgeous and an experience that we all want. You know, and so we did that for you know, several months, and it was it was hard. It's incredibly hard. Yeah, you know, went from my beautiful you know apartment, sky apartment in New York, to you know sharing <laughs> a bedroom in a casino hotel in the middle of nowhere with you know other folks, the designer, and being in food deserts where there was no. We were desperate to try find ways to feed the, everybody. We we're dragging yeah. you know. People around the prairie trying to figure out how to feed them because there are a lot of food deserts on reservations. Uh, you know, all those things that we were, you know, dealing with are are just real life. And you know, that's what my ultimate goal is. Right? When I was talking about the Guthrie, and I'm talking about Broadway, I'm talking about these things like theater should be life. Right? It should be part of your life. You should be able to be a human when you come to theater, and you should feel that your full humanity is welcome in the space. Whatever kind of whether it's the haze or it's the skate park. You should feel that you can just come and be yourself and that you will see yourself and that you will feel a kinship with those fellow humans next to you on the varying experiences you're all having together. That's what theater should be. And so those two experiences are, although so opposite, are the same, right? And they they should be the same. And that's my goal, my hope for theater.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of people... There is a barrier there though, right? Of like, you know, a Broadway show or something like that, you know, it's a 100 plus dollars a ticket and there's a special venue, you know, just if you don't live in New York or a place, you know, near a big city, like there there can be all these barriers to entry. And I guess what I hear you saying is that theater should be accessible to all people and should be just a part of of how we think about ourselves and how we interpret who we are. I guess what have you learned about how to make Theater more accessible and and to bring it to the people as you've done.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's so many things, right? I, obviously, yeah, ticket prices are important. Yeah, you know, we work hard in every theater I'm in. You know, so the Hayes also gave away so many tickets. <laughs> they just gave tickets to native people. Like you want right. a ticket, you get a ticket. The native elber walked up and asked for a ticket. They just gave it to him. They didn't charge That's them great. anything. You yeah. know, and they were clear about that. From that they were going to do that from the beginning. Uh, they gave incredible discounts, you know, to people um, as needed, you know, and there are people that didn't need them. And, you know, but the, the other thing they did is they, yeah, I'll say the Hayes and, you know, the Guthrie for instance, too, they, there, there's an expiration. So, so often what we do is we say, okay, we will give away tickets or we'll give these inexpensive ticket codes, but it's only for previews or it's only for these yeah. special moments. We need you. And then right. later when we don't need you, you're on your own, you know, Then you pay the yeah. whatever ridiculous amount of money people pay for tickets. I can't, I can't afford that, you know. I mean, I probably could now if I really wanted to, but I, I couldn't until very recently. Sure. Um, and so they said, no, these codes last. Those are yours. This is how we pay reparations back to these people on whose land we are profiting from. Is yeah. that here's the code. It's very inexpensive. And it goes forever. And if you have trouble, we'll figure, we'll get you a ticket. You know, like it's very open. They're very open about it. And They don't hide it. You know, that's the other thing. So often theaters are like they're so scared. They have such a scarcity mentality, and they hide the codes and don't tell yeah. anybody and don't share it on social media. We're blasting the shit out of those codes on social media. Like <laughs> you're like, here, here, get, get yourself, get a ticket. You know. And it was interesting because I was talking to Carol Rothman a while after the show, a couple months after it closed, and she's like, you know. It's so, my show sold fine on Broadway. Like, it did well. Um, yeah. It wasn't the top seller of the year, but it did. It made money. It did great. It did fine. It did extend, you know, everything was as much as we could. Our actors had other obligations, so it couldn't extend very long, but, you know, it did great. It did fine. But what it did, she said, it brought in literally thousands of people that had never been to that theater. Like, wow. thousands. She's yeah. like, we've never had such a diverse, you know, varied audience for a full run of a show like this. Preview, yeah. sure. You never pass that because they just blasted these codes and blast like here. You know, you're welcome anytime. We're not just asking you to come here when we need you to make it look good. We're asking right. you to be a part of the space and we're committing to it. And so, you know, it's so like the interaction we had ongoing uh, with a younger, co- more colorful audience, diversified in gender and and sexuality and race was really and age was really incredible. And it it, continu- it never stopped. Um. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Guthrie is doing the same thing, you know, the audiences every night, you can hear huge groups of Native folks there. And I think, you know, other ticket places, yeah, that, so that's the beginning, right? Because we just have to make tickets accessible, but not just when you want them. Right. Like, asking, you know, this is your space the whole time. Yeah. And then I think also, you know, just like what I was talking about, just our spaces, you have to recognize, we have to acknowledge it's we're upholding white supremacy culture in the theaters. This is what it was created on. Our Western yeah. theaters are created based on a white supremacy culture model. Like this, you, this is how you act. You're silent. You are on time. You have the resources to have the babysitter, to have your nanny show up as opposed to a babysitter that you're desperately trying to get or an auntie that you're trying to get to come and take care of the kids so you can go to the theater. You know, like you have all these resources to show up on time and be silent and turn off your phones because you don't have to deal with auntie taking care of the kids back home. You right. know what I mean? Like... We have to see like all these things are assuming wealthy white patrons. And so if you assume that you want people that have to get grandma to take care of the children at home because they want a night out, but better bring the children, which is the case in for the people, children absolutely yeah. welcome $5 seat for any child and we'll let them roam around. They roam around. They have a great time. So <laughs> yeah. first I'd rather have that. But if you're not going to have that, if you want to get them died away from the kids, great then if you have to have grandma take care of the children and grandma's running late cuz grandma's a grandma you should be able to come whenever you want and walk in and enjoy the thing you paid for and spend all this free, this time on you should be able to check your text cuz grandma's having an emergency And answer it quickly and quietly and put it away. You should be able to, you know, do all these things. You should be able to pee because you didn't have time to pee beforehand because grandma was running late and the kids were screaming. You should be able to go and pee and be comfortable and come back. You know, like it's simple things like, but we just, you know, we're making these assumptions that you had the resources to hire someone to come and be there early so you could pee before you left. And (laughs) you know what I mean? they will take care of anything that happens. And like we're assuming all those things about to attend theater, and that's not the way many people's lives go. So let's yeah. welcome to life.
0: All right, Larissa Fasthorse. There it was a great conversation. Uh, I love just hearing about the purity of her experience as an artist and wanting to honor that art in everything she's doing. I think that is incredible, and. I want to learn more. (laughs) I, I wanted to ask her about her whole neuroscience behind her writing process and all. And it just, you know, in a conversation of this length and wanting to cover the topics we did, it didn't make sense. But maybe someday I can have Larissa back on and we can do a whole deep dive into the neuroscience of writing, because that is fascinating to me as well. If you're interested in checking out Larissa's work, For the People is playing through November 12th at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. Go check that out. Go get some tickets. It sounds like an amazing show and one that is really inclusive of the Indigenous audience, the Indigenous performers, the Indigenous crew. That is really cool. And again, the Thanksgiving play, I loved it. If it's anywhere near you, go and check it out. It's interesting to me that each production is so wildly different too, as Larissa was saying. That is very cool. So I'm grateful that Larissa made the time for this conversation today. And I'm grateful that you listened to the end. If you want to hear more from Willoughby Hills, you can sign up for my newsletter. It is free. It comes out every Wednesday and Sunday. Go to heathrasellacom slash newsletter to get on that list. If you want to upgrade to a paying membership, you will also get exclusive early access to the podcast and you'll be supporting this work, which I love doing. I love bringing these conversations to you all. I love learning something new from each and every guest that I have on this show. I am at Heath Rosala on social media. Give me a follow. Let's connect over there. And thank you for tuning in today. Larissa Fasthorse for the people. November 12th, Minneapolis. Go see it. Till next time, everybody. Stay safe.